0: Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. I'm your host, Aubrey Witte. Today, we are featuring the third of eight podcasts produced in partnership with SAP Success Factors. Each will feature an expert in the field of HR, and we'll explore some of the most pressing issues facing talent management. Today it's my pleasure to introduce you to our guest speaker, Dr. Stephen Hunt, who will be sharing some insights around social performance management, what it is, why it might work for you, and how you can make it effective in your own organization. As the Vice President of Human Capital Management Research at SAP SuccessFactors, Steve is focused on guiding the development and application of technology-enabled solutions to create thriving, agile, and engaged workforces. He has over 25 years of experience working with a variety of human capital management applications, and he's played a pivotal role in creating systems that have improved productivity and engagement of millions of employees across large and small organizations. So, welcome, Steve. It's so great to have you here today.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: All right, so I'm going to dive right into this because performance management is really one of the necessary evils of business. And I say an evil because it's Pretty much categorically disliked, right? So give me a high level overview of performance management today because it's changed relatively drastically in the last 15 years or so. What do you want people to know about it?
1: Well, I think the first thing is it's not evil. I think the evil part is poorly designed performance management processes. Um, It is necessary and actually done well. People want it Um, if you hear people. We'll actually complain saying, "I don't get any feedback on my performance. I don't know how the company makes decisions that affect my pay. I don't understand the rules of the game, if you will." People want effective performance management. They hate ineffective performance management. It's sort of like saying, you know, exercise is a necessary evil. You know, exercise can be painful. It also can be really fun. The key is that you kind of do it the right way. And it's and it's good for you. If you don't do it, it's that's bad. The same thing, you know, um, if you look at a lot of the issues around bias, a lot of it is because companies don't have well-defined methods for making decisions that impact people's careers. So, you know, I can relate to the necessary evil because there's a lot of really crappy processes out there that are pretty evil, but the concept itself is not only necessary, it's important and it's valuable. Um, so I guess... The first thing you know is find what is performance management. It's basically actions to set expectations for people when they're working so they understand what is the purpose of me being here? Why am I here? What do you want me to do? I'm giving you the majority of waking hours of my life. What should I be doing for you? Which is, by the way, what it is to work for a company, you know? What do you want me to do and why does it matter? So that's the first thing, setting expectations. It's about motivation and attention. Um, and then the second one is giving people ongoing feedback. Help me be successful. Give me coaching. Give me, tell me what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong. Again, people want this. And then the third one is recognize me for what I did. You know, if I contributed more to the company, it makes sense. I probably should get more back, whether that's in terms of pay, career opportunities. Likewise, if I'm not contributing, there should be consequences to that too. It's, you know, and I think we kind of look at this that it's, if you look at these things, if you look at these three things, setting expectations, providing feedback and coaching, and rewarding people for what they do, there's nothing evil about that. The challenge is how do you do that effectively, and also recognizing that those are three separate things. The problem with traditional performance management is you try to do all simultaneously. You know, We're going to give you feedback while we decide how much we want to pay you. Is always joking. You know, Tell me what we need to get better at so I can decide how much I want to pay you. That doesn't really work very well. But what's happening is it's... Um, going through a massive change largely because of two things, you know, technology and the basically the importance of people. People are more important now than they were in the past to be honest.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I think I think we're all a little bit jaded because I think all of us have experienced in some capacity a really terribly designed performance management process or experienced um, you know, getting feedback after a year um you know, and it's stale, and there's no way that you can improve upon it. So some of those common pitfalls, I, I think that we all are kind of intimately familiar with what it feels like when it fails, and we're not so familiar with what performance management feels like when it's really successful. Um, because in your research, you know, you looked at lots of different companies that have um, done a lot with their performance management programs, but many of them, um, you know, had to come from a place of fixing something because it wasn't working the way that was originally designed.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of the fixing the problem was um, the technology. So if you look at the changes in the transformation of performance management, you have to remember, I don't think anyone ever wanted a traditional annual performance review the way we can, the things that we hate, that once a year thing. And I doubt anyone said, let's design a process that encourages companies to give feedback one time a year. I really doubt anybody ever had that in mind. What probably happened was, whatever, 50 years ago or something, somebody said, we should have a standard process to evaluate the performance of people. It should be consistent and well-defined. That's like fair, you know? And somebody said, okay, we want to do it across hundreds of people, and here's a stack of paper and the best they could do was the annual performance review. If we'd always had social mobile technology, I don't think we ever would have had annual reviews the way that people sort of come to hate them. And that's really what's happened is that the technology is enabling companies to just do performance management completely different ways, probably the ways we should do it, but you just couldn't do it without this technology. So that's one of the reasons why it's changing. The other reasons why it's changing is, With the increasing change in the world because of digitalization, you know, I sort of joke, the only constant is change isn't true anymore. Now, the only constant is an ever-accelerating rate of change. Well, people are really good at dealing with change. One of the myths is people fear change. People fear change if it's poorly managed, but actually change is good for us. It's called learning and growth and development. But you have to have the right conditions, which goes back to people are good at change if they know the reason that, about their job. What am I trying to accomplish? What is the nature of the change? They feel supported from others around doing it, and they feel that achieving that change, being successful, is going to you know, be meaningful for them in terms of advancing their lives and their careers and their personal goals. This is what's happening in it. Um, so it's kind of this combination of two things happening simultaneously, technology allowing us to do things differently than we can do in the past, and the nature of the business market changing that we need to do things differently than we did them in the past.
0: Yeah, that's really well put. Um, so, I want to shift a little bit because you talked broadly about performance management, but I want to talk about social performance management. And you went through all of this effort to write a white paper on this topic um, called The Peloton Model of Social Performance Management, which is available from SAP Success Factors. Um, and also, any of our listeners can check out the link in this podcast description so they can access it and read it. But I want to kind of start with. Why? What inspired you to invest the amount of time and effort it takes to write a white paper on social performance management?
1: Yeah, um, well, you know, I write quite a lot, and it's funny because I've asked that question why do you write things? And to be honest, I write things when I feel that the world needs to know. <laughs> You know, that may sound kind of arrogant, but, but writings are paid, you know, it takes a while. And I think when I looked at it, as I said, there's all this conversation out there, and it's all around coaching and getting rid of ratings, which, by the way, is going away, thank God, finally, that whole unhealthy fad, because... You, just briefly on ratings, if you define ratings as categorizing employees based on the perceived value to the company, every company is going to rate people in some way, shape, or form. You know, if the CEO wants to know who the high performers are, and I've never met a CEO who didn't, then by definition, you're rating people. So The question isn't, are you rating them? The question is, are you doing it in an effective manner? And usually, that isn't an annual review. But there's a lot of this talk, and all the, all the focus on performance management was more on coaching, which is really, really important. But what I noticed when I looked at both how people were looking at performance reviews, which tend to be done sort of looking at an individual, and not just not just companies, but also a lot of like people in academia studying performance, it was all kind of looking at re- evaluating the individual, and it was this view of like we're going to try to measure people's performance. And then I work with a lot of companies, and I said this is missing actually what performance management is about, which is actually not a measurement problem. It's actually Kind of a social judgment, which is to say, when we're looking at whether or not somebody's a high performer, we're not looking at people in isolation. We're looking at them in context of the group that they're in. How we define effective performance is heavily influenced by who we work with. And whether or not we are a high performer is heavily influenced by the people around us, and our own performance is heavily influenced by the people around us. Performance is very much a social concept. We work in teams and we work in groups, and this idea that you can evaluate whether or not somebody is a high performer in an organization in some sort of abstract way without looking at the larger group context just misses the whole picture of how performance actually works you know, in terms of people and how we work together.
0: Yeah. I I love the way that you've conceptualized this because I think that everybody kind of inherently knows it. Um, but now you're actually kind of putting some terms to it so we can talk about it more because I know that for myself being part of a high performing team drives my own performance. And if I'm part of a low performing team, then I'm a little lazier, right? I don't get as much accomplished. Um, so what's with the word Peloton? What, what does that mean in the context of social performance management?
1: Well, I really use the model Peloton because it, this goes back, and I have to give credit to a guy, Paul Limbry who first made me aware of this. So I was talking to him once, and he said, and he'd done a lot of work going on talking to companies that were sort of famous for producing high-performing individuals. So like, I don't remember the actual organizations, but, you know, places like Olympic training camps, you know, special operations training in the military, Juilliard School of Music, places like that, right, where, you know, they're known for producing high performers all the time in whatever field. And then when they talked to people about it, and he said what they learned in talking to some of these people is that they said, well, how do you do this? And they said, well, there's two things. One, there's selection. You need to, like make sure you're bringing people the right talent to begin with, but then they said it had a lot more to do with how we manage the lower performers than the high performers, which is totally the opposite of what you hear a lot of people talking about. And what they said is like if you take the example of you know musical professionals, they say, look, you kind of have in an orchestra, you've got your soloists. Those are like superstar performers, and those people, they're internally driven. You know, they kind of focus, and for them, you you can't coach that. They're just like phenomenal, right? You can give them tips, but they're sort of a, they're self-driven. But then you have like the regular people in the middle, like the first chairs of an orchestra, and then I think the first chair may never be a soloist. They're inspired by it, but they're also influenced heavily. By the fact that they're a first chair and they're not a second chair. So the harder the second chair works, the more the first chair will work. And the second chair is influenced by, wow, I'm the second chair violinist, but I might become the first chair, so I kind of like want to catch up with them, but I also don't want to be the third chair. And they said how good the first and second chair are is heavily influenced by how hard the third chair in the orchestra practices. With the same concept, When I looked at that, because I'm not a musician, I'm a bike rider, just recreational, I thought of the Peloton and the Tour de France, which is that big group of riders in a bike race where how fast the Peloton rides is not just about the front performers. It's about the people in the back, how fast the back of the pack rides. because So a lot of improving performance and increasing the performance of the overall organization is actually about how quickly you can get the, the back end of that peloton to ride. And this really aligned with some research that we did with um, Baylor University, where we went out and talked to managers about performance management. We didn't ask about their process. We just said, how do you manage performance of employees? Because every manager has to do it. And what they came back and they said to us is, they said it really aligned with what Paul Limbri had shared with me years before. Is he, he said, you know, the most critical people and the hardest ones to deal with are not the front of the peloton. It's that performer that's not a bad performer. They're not like the 2 or 3% that you're trying to get out of the organization. They're good people. They're solid people. Sometimes they have critical skills. We can't lose them. But they're just not firing on all cylinders for some reason. Maybe they're in the wrong role. Maybe something's going on outside of work. And they're liking that is the group because these people's performance it's not just about them. It affects everyone around them. And so those are sort of came with a idea of the Peloton, which is most discussions of performance management don't look at that back end of performance enough. They just kind of focus more on high performers. And in reality, when you look at a large organization, what's going to move the mass of the workforce up is not the high performers. Yeah, that can help But also, it's a part of the workforce that does not typically get a lot of attention. And again, these aren't people you're trying to get rid of. Companies can't get rid of them. They don't want to get rid of them. They just need to make them more effective. And that's how I came up with that sort of Peloton model idea that, you know, you kind of have to manage all aspects of the workforce, but they're all interrelated. How you manage low performers definitely influences high performers.
0: I think that that's that's fascinating, and it actually gives people kind of a roadmap of where to focus within organizations that, you know, I I think we've historically made the mistake that either it's all about the high performers or it's all about the really low performers, like the the people that need to be on improvement plans or development plans, um, they kind of suck up a lot of the energy. And you're saying that there's this whole middle tier of individuals that really affect the performance of your highest performers, and that's where we need to, to spend a little bit more time and effort.
1: Yeah, and I would, I would build on that even more. It doesn't affect the performance. It also affects your attraction and retention, because the thing about high performers is particularly superstar performers, they often are not heavily influenced. Some of them are influenced by, like, recognition and compensation, but a lot of them it's very much internally driven. They're like, you know, hey, I want to make an impact. I have the skill set. But they hate working with low-performing individuals. Go, You know, go, going back to my orchestra example, that soloist who's phenomenal, they don't expect the second or third chair in the violin section to play at their level. But they're going to be really frustrated if those people don't show the same commitment to doing the best job possible that they do. And I think that's one thing where organizations, where they, when they don't do enough to develop and address people that are sort of in that middle to end range, they're going to have a hard time keeping really high-performing talent because people, high performers, want to work in a place where they feel supported. They don't want to work with low-performing people. And again, to your point, too, we're not talking about terrible performance. We're talking about mediocre performance. Most mediocre performers don't want to be mediocre performers. They just don't know how to get better.
0: That, that's a really important point, that this is not just about, you know, keeping your high performers retained and making sure that they have the support that they need, but it's also about widening the doors and opening the opportunity that you might be able to develop even more high performers by focusing on this cohort of individuals.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things, too, if you look at going back to the Peloton example of that bike race, if you look at a healthy Peloton, a fast-moving one, there's a lot of movement within the Peloton realizing that just because you're a high performer this year doesn't mean you're going to be a high performer next year. And just because maybe you're a lower performer this year doesn't mean you're going to be a low performer next year. A healthy organization has a lot of movement in those areas because what defines performance is it's a combination of what you do as an individual, but also it's going to be influenced by what you're trying to accomplish. And so as people get promoted, you should expect to see a dip in their performance, um, If you're setting effective goals, like effective goals should be difficult. They should be achievable but difficult. But if you have an individual who has always hit their goals every year, year after year, they're not really setting difficult goals. So part of it as an organization is creating a culture where people realize, look, we may give you a gold star for a good job, but that gold star is not permanently affixed to your head. You know, it's like just because you're a high performer this year doesn't mean you're going to be one next year. We'd like you to be. But if you're not, that's okay because we also know these things move all the time, which is something that I think is also really missed a lot is the dynamic nature of performance. And this is where the challenge is as leaders is leaders have a tendency to label people you know, as though they're permanently going to be high performers and low performers. And part of that, that's where bringing in more effective talent management practices that really challenge leaders to say, challenge your assumptions, justify it. Because if you've got a healthy organization, you're going to see movement in performance from one year to the next.
0: Yep. That's an important consideration that performance is not static. And I think that it's also really relevant today because we see more and more frequently that the the new currency, if you will, of organizations is teamwork, right? It's uh, Mm -hmm. a team for this, a team for that, a team for this. Um, And so few roles are purely just about individual contributions where you don't have to manage and work within the confines of a a group um, or of a team. So I guess my next question is just around because teams are so ubiquitous today and used by organizations, what do leaders need to know to maximize their teams? You know, kind of informed by this social performance management research, what what do you want them to kind of walk away with and think about?
1: I think the biggest thing is getting comfortable with talking about differences in people. And if I look at organizations that do this well, first of all, going back to your question about performance management, I look at the companies that do this side of performance management well. None of them are going to say we got rid of ratings. They may have gotten, most of them got rid of the traditional annual end of the year review because they said it. It misses this whole like, social concept of performance. We don't want managers rating themselves by themselves in a closed room by themselves because a manager can't really understand the performance of an employee without talking to other managers and other employees about that person because um, the manager has a limited perspective. And so what these companies do is they do what are called calibration talent reviews where they bring a group of stakeholders together and they will talk about, you know, 50 people in an organization, and will kind of go through this process of saying, like, who are the people that this year are, hit, you know, hitting it out of the park? Who are the people that are doing well? Who people that are struggling? Who people might do more? But this conversation is not about just putting people in boxes to put them in boxes. It's about talking about why are people at different levels? Why is this person doing so well? Why is this person struggling? And what should we do to manage them differently to make them more successful? or to recognize them to make them more engaged. And it's getting comfortable with having this sort of a dialogue where we can talk about the differences between people without labeling them as, quote, winners or losers. You know, it's a little bit like when I, for years I coached, like, youth lacrosse and youth soccer and youth sports, and I worked with a lot of other coaches and my kids played, and I noticed that the coaches that were really good, the really successful coaches really took time to know their entire team. They didn't just know the starting players. And I remember one coach in particular, probably the most successful football team my son ever played on. It's just like, you know, seventh graders, whatever. But they they, they did really, really well. And the coach at the end of the season got up and he started the conversation, you know, kind of the end of the rewards, where he said, you know, the reason that we did so well it was all the players, but I want to tell who were some critical that probably didn't pay attention. He goes, it was our second string. He said, these players, because they practiced so hard in practice, they made our first string players play better in games. And then when we needed them to come off the bench, they came in at a higher level. And it was really interesting because this was a coach who was very comfortable in recognizing not everyone's going to perform at the same level, but just because you're not at the first string, top string, doesn't mean you don't play a critical, important part in that organization and are worthy of investment, development, coaching, and support. He equally coached the entire team. He didn't just focus on his, quote, winners. He viewed all the team. And I think that is the critical thing. Organizations need to get comfortable with we can talk about differences in performance without making people or treating people like winners and losers.
0: That's a great story and a really good point to make. Um, and I like the the contextualization of of this is what it means like as, as a leader. This is what you can take and this is how you can kind of think about your team a little bit differently. What about me as an individual? You know, what can I do with this information? How can I maybe determine what category I fall into when I look at the SPM Peloton model?
1: I think part of it is as an individual, recognize that no one is going to be what I call a breakaway performer, the person that gets out in front of that group of riders in the Peloton every single stage, every single year. If you look at like the Tour de France, the person that wins each individual stage, it's not the same person each time. Um, so part of it is getting comfortable with the sense that just because I wasn't super successful once doesn't mean I can't be in the future. And knowing the future that if I'm really successful, yeah, I want to do it again, but if I don't, always be learning, always be developing. And make sure that you're working in an organization where you feel that sense of appreciation. You don't feel that they kind of forget you if you're not in the front. Um, because I think it's really important of one's own career. It's also looking around the people around you and learning from them. I think one of the things that happens, particularly as you get farther along in one's career, is you get comfortable in your own skin. You learn, okay, I'm good at this. I'm not as good at that. And you start picking and choosing the things that you want to develop. And this is sort of the, you know, the first Break All the Rules book by Buckingham and Coff years ago really emphasized this, which part of um, developing oneself is saying, okay, what are the strengths that are going to move me to the front? That's what I should invest the most in. But also you need to manage possible weaknesses. Make sure they don't hold you back. And so a lot of this is learning what you're good at, focusing on that, and then surrounding yourself with people that complement what you're not so good at. So, like, you know, you'll see this as good managers. Um, they'll hire people into their teams that are good at things that they're not good at. You don't want to surround yourself with people that are all just like you. You want to surround yourself with people that complement your capabilities. And you want to go to work in places where you feel that sense that it's like, I don't want a bunch of people that are all exactly just like me. I want to work with people that complement my capabilities that I can learn from them and they can learn from me.
0: Yep. Great tips. Great tips. Thank you. So on the in the vein of that, of learning, <laughs> you know, and always kind of exposing yourself to new ideas, why should people read this white paper after listening to this podcast? What nuggets of wisdom will you share within that?
1: I, I think the main reason, um, well, it's wonderfully written. It's a riveting tale of social performance management. Um, <laughs> really, But, uh, no, I think it's a short paper, and I have gotten the feedback I've gotten from people is, It really resonates because when you look at it, it makes sense and it it breaks down not only these different categories exist, it talks through how to manage these different categories because what motivates somebody at the front of the peloton, if you will, is different from what's going to motivate somebody in the back. So people towards the front, you know, hey, what's going to motivate them is going to be being recognized for the contributions, being given more resources to be successful, When you get to the back end of the peloton, a lot of the coaching has to be confidence. Um, A lot of what people are struggling with tend is it's not just telling people, hey, this is what you need to do different. It's about building their confidence. And I do go back to um, my experiences coaching youth sports. Boy, I'll tell you, the difference between the okay coaches and the great coaches was the ability The great coaches were able to give confidence to kids who didn't feel they had the capability but did. And so a lot of this from a perspective of if you're involved in managing people or if you're involved in developing processes for managing people, reading the paper will help start to think about how do we do a better job of recognizing and supporting that second string because they play such a critical role in the overall success of the entire team. I think that's why I would recommend people read it.
0: Great. Thank you. And I do have a biased perspective, but I have read the white paper and I agree. It really resonated with me. So if that counts for anything, I am also endorsing it. Um,
1: (laughs) Thank you very
0: much. You're welcome. We have wrapped up um, our time for today. But Steve, thank you so much for speaking with our audience about this topic and really digging into the details of what social performance management is and how they can actually start to apply some of these principles in their own um, work lives and as individuals, too.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: HCI members, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel, HCI Talent. If you are listening on iTunes, we'd love to get your rating and review. It helps other professionals and like-minded people discover this program. We'd like to close by saying a big thank you again to all of you for taking time out of your day to spend with us. For all of us at HCI, thanks for listening.